changed so clear your head so in today's episode on rf langley i'm joined by jack baloney Jack's written some really interesting articles on Langley, including an extended review of his complete poems in 3AM magazine and a piece bringing together Langley and Bruno Latour in the journal Religion and Literature. Jack's also got a pamphlet of poems out with broken sleep books called Spandrel Routine, which I've been reading this week and I can very warmly recommend to anyone listening. Uh, I think Broken Sleep have got lots of interesting things out, so get on the website and get ordering that. Uh, I also believe that Jack's a repeated listener of the podcast, which is quite a small community of people he's a part of. Um, And we may just see some uh, comparisons, some recall of some of the discussions that have gone in the the first series um, as we move through today's episode. So let's start by talking a little bit about who RF Langley was about why he's interesting about why we might want to read here jack do you want to give us a bit of info about langley yeah thanks i mean i'm really good to um so you must have mentioned we might bring up previous podcasts because um the way that langley's often sort of introduced and raised in uh in poetry circles and there's, there's limitations to this but it is kind of useful is um he was a university friend of twin they were at jh twin they were at cambridge uh together um, in the turn of the 60s, I believe. Um, the big difference between uh, Prynne and Langley is that while Prynne stayed on at Cambridge and taught at university, Langley um, went on to train as a school teacher. He taught at grammar schools, a number of grammar schools in the West Midlands um, for, throughout his career. Um, we know that he was a subscriber to the English Intelligentsia, which was the sort of classic small, sort of modernist small magazine that circulates among the so-called Cambridge School of Poets. He subscribes to it, but he doesn't actually write for it. Um, He, alongside teaching English and art history, as we'll come on to, um, he writes a a small, fairly small number of poems, um, along with keeping a journal, and gradually these get published, and he begins to write more after his retirement um, in the late 90s and then through the 2000s. so, and then, yeah, it was uh, p- passed away uh, just over 10 years ago now in 2011 and famously won the Ford Prize for Best Single Poem posthumously, um, first poem to, the, to a nightingale. Um, yeah, and been very interesting, um, very sort of, say, small, the complete poems, I think it's, I think, 50, 50 poems long. Um, small, but really rich and interesting of, of, of poetry. I'm not going to, I don't want to say a lot about Langley's sustained interest in early modern material um because i'm i'm not especially knowledge about knowledgeable about that whole lifelong engagement that he has with with shakespeare with poets of the 16th 17th century with the art of that period as well um you know i think it's fair to say quite a profound engagement with the 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 cultural output of that period because in today's discussion we're going to focus right in on one of his poems called uh, achilles and the, the early modern text that goes with that uh, isn't uh, a bit of Shakespeare, it isn't a bit of Dunn, it isn't a bit of poetry. It's actually a monument at a church in the village of Stockerston in Leicestershire. This is one of a few poems by Langley that really explore 
the, the, the architecture and art of very specific locations. So I think I've, I counted sort of three or four where he's gone into very local English churches, uh, parish churches, and, and, and made a very great deal out of what he's seen, out of those uh, minute details uh, that he, he gives intense attention to. He's also got quite a few poems about Italian art and Italian churches in, in Florence and Venice and other places. Yeah, um, and, and that's it's probably worth saying that those would have equally been inspired um, by going there and actually being in, being in situ before those artworks as well. Um, as I say, we know we know from the journals, say, which have been regularly published in, in the Poetry Magazine, Peer Review, and have been a selection being published separately as a book by by Shearsman as well. Um, he, he, he does this a lot. Clearly, that that is a very distinctive, you know, sort of leisure activity for him is to go and spend a long time in churches. And yeah, so some of the some of those experiences um, inflect the poems. I mean, some is saying three or four of them very clearly. I think in in the background of lots more. Um, I think they're bubbling away in, in perhaps slightly subtler ways too. I think a quotation that's that stuck with me that you you quoted in your article um, on on uh, Langley and Caravaggio is this idea he has of the intense attention to the particular, um, and I'm I'm kind of wary of even picking that out because I'm I don't really fully understand what he's on about, um, but he, he uses that phrase as explaining one important activity that you, you could do, and. Um, is it in his expression that he says it doesn't matter whether it's a ketchup bottle or a Bellini? Um, that intense attention is, you know, a, a vital activity. However, a point perhaps you make or, or that we'll be exploring today is that he doesn't talk a lot about ketchup bottles in his poetry, but he does talk quite a bit, bit about church architecture. <laughs> So after that little digression, we're going to go to St. Peter's in Stockerston, not a church I've ever been to, but I'm really grateful for some um, enthusiasts in this area for putting pictures of the relevant tomb on Flickr. And I think I've got one user who's who's posted up his pictures from the church in about 2006, something like that. So they've been sat there 15 years getting viewers over that time um but there was no other place we could get them online i'm really hoping i'm going to be able to put these up on twitter or something so you can look at them uh, or at least link to them um while watching this podcast because we're going to be we're just going to be talking through what we can see uh, and trying our best to kind of explain this experience so that you've, you've got an idea of what's happening there but you you do need to see this as as well so what we've got is a funeral monument to a woman called Elizabeth Havers. And it's quite a striking floor mounted engraving where we've got a full body drawing or engraving of uh, Elizabeth Havers. Her face is relatively clear, face and hair is relatively clear, but it looks like quite a lot of the image is actually of her in, in what's likely to be a shroud. At the top, it looks a little bit like it might be a veil, but she's, she's dead, so a shroud is maybe slightly more likely. And around the edges, there's uh, black stone with white inscriptions, some of which are in 
English, some of which are in Latin. And maybe just reading out one of the English inscriptions gives you a bit of an idea of what's going on. So it says at the bottom, Here buried rests Elizabeth, sole daughter of Sir Richard Cecil of Wakeley in the county of Northamptonshire, Knight, sprung from the Cecil of that noble, famous and ancient house of Exeter, wife of John Havers of Stockerston, Esquire, was born in the year 1606 and died the 15th of February, 1633. We can assume that the tomb was relatively it was constructed relatively soon after her passing, so it's been there since 1633. That, that pivotal year for English poetry, when the poems of Herbert were published, when the poems of Dunn were published, but I'm not sure that's very important at this, at this moment. Also on the left, there's a kind of motto, which um, you know could have been something that Havers herself uh, said or, or was it was dear to her we, we don't know we don't have a lot of information about her and it says i glory in my place that i the dust of virtue keep yet no now resign i must my jewel kept though not till day of doom exchanging then this urn for heaven's great tomb at the top a bit of latin resurgam mors mihi vita which i'm hoping jack can give me a very very good translation of <laughs> Something like I will, I will rise, I will rise from death to my life, expressing hope in the resurrection, in life, in life that comes from death, if nothing else. I mean, that sounds absolutely, absolutely about right. It's, it would be very, un, it would be very surprising for it to be anything other than something like that. And then to the right, Johannes Havers Maritus uh, Mastissimus Carissime Uxori Amoris Monumentum Posuit, which I think is saying something along the lines of John Havers erected this monument to his most beloved wife, something like that. I'm not quite sure what Maritus Mastissinus means. I, well, that, that's masculine, so I think it would be like most esteemed husband or something like that. Okay. Uh, yeah, again, making it clear he's the husband and building this monument out of love. Yeah. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I know that giving the description orally is not going to be anything like looking at this thing and... and I think it's important to remember as well, we're, we're just looking at grainy photos. We're not there in the church, which is where, um, you know, Langley would have been. Um, but I mean, I've just tried to sort of talk that through as descriptively as possible. I wondered, yeah, what, what here catches your eye? What do you find interesting about this, if anything? Do you think this is, um, you know, remarkable in any way? One thing that's really struck me is, you know, all those things you were saying about having to look it up on Flickr and actually, you know, that there, but for the grace of God or a few people on the internet, we managed to get a get a sense of what he's looking at. And actually, I mean, that, you know, one of the things I kind of find find really weird and interesting about reading Langley is that, it, you know, as I say, he, he died 10 years ago and like the, the poems we're discussing were poems written, you know, in the 21st century. So in a sense, I, I wouldn't shy away from calling them contemporary poems. There's a certain way in which these poems are sort of before the internet. You you, you recognise that, that that they're coming from a they're coming from a place where actually the experience you know the experience of having access to artworks and certainly to good quality colour representations of artworks was very very rare. And I think I think even in you know your standard art history textbooks, you you can you can understand what it might mean to want to go and sit before an art an artwork for you know three or four hours and really attend to the experience of being in front front of it 
what makes him choose to go out to find and look carefully at these objects um, is something which this kind of this kind of attention in the work of writing the poems sort of is is my clue to that and brings that out really. I mean, yeah, and I mean, looking looking at looking at these pictures, which are, are very very imperfect, I think this would be really quite an arresting monument if you went into a church, and even if you you know you're, you weren't you know, an incredibly attentive or incredibly um, knowledgeable uh, visitor. My feeling is that this is something you would notice. And if you were an attentive visitor, then it's something that you could get very absorbed by very quickly because it's so unusual. Like having this kind of uh, flat engraving on the ground, like I just can't recall having ever seen anything like this. And uh, I mean, I say that, not as an expert, but as someone who likes going into old churches and just having a bit of a bit of a look around. However much Stockerston is not a famous church, and it's you know maybe there's some art history book or architectural history book where there's a really really rich entry on this particular church. I haven't found it if if there is one, but it's 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 it's, it's a weird for me. That's kind of a weird. I wouldn't quite call it attention, but diff- a weird difference between this this you know quite unique monument on the one hand and you know the humility of the surroundings or the uh, obscurity of the surroundings that, that don't have a kind of international or even national rep- representation to have the, the, this this engraving at all on the floor is remarkable and to look at it with with just a tiny bit of attention we can give it you know to have a fairly you know I, I hesitate to say lifelike face but you know, someone who has been drawn yeah, in, 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 in a realistic way. It's not just a purely stylized figure. This looks like someone who could have existed at some time, um, who's got some kind of a look in her, her eyes, what, what that could mean, we, we will talk about later, um, who's got a little book in her left hand, not reading it at this moment. I can see how the opportunity to be really, really drawn in in a church setting offers itself and I can also see that it's 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 possible to be interested in that right now it's maybe not possible to be totally absorbed in it right now which is a little bit frustrating yeah and and also the fact that you know um we've been calling it an artwork but also a tomb you know a tomb has functions other than being an artwork I mean you know we're, we're looking at an image of it you know it is there in a in a physical space the category of art sort of create, you know, creates different kinds of objects out of things which, you know, have, you know, religious, you know, funerary memorial functions beyond the kind of attention. It's very easy to give them when you see an image of it. And also that, you know, it is, it's the kind of thing that can get walked over, as we'll see when we talk about the poem, that, you know, if you if you see it in the space, it's in a, within a three-dimensional context and there within time, you know, and we will see, you know, light passing over it, um, changes coming to it. I mean, uh, if, you, if you look at the, the way that it's weathered, the way that, I'm not sure whether it's like lichen or erosion or whatever these, these you know, the spots on the image have come to it. But there's there's various things about attention allows you to see it as an, as an object within space and time um, in ways that are quite easy to be lost. And, and, you know, again, sort of put questions and question marks and brackets around what does it mean to think of this as an art object as such? Um, you know, it's somewhere between the ketchup bottle and the Bellini then in that case, as as most things are when you start looking at them properly, perhaps. Right. And I think yeah. um, 
I, th- I mean, I think we should get straight off straight yeah. into Langley because I, I mean, feel the, the, like... the other thing that's perhaps worth saying before you do is, and I've only just noticed this now, is is that poem the fact that this is an artwork which has you know po- poems and actually in their own way quite quite a strange firm attached to it. You know, it's this anonymous lines and probably somewhere you know it, it's not necessarily something that somebody crafted as a poem, just as this wasn't made as an artwork. But you know, both those first lines en jambe which you don't expect in a kind of metrical quatrain like this. I glory in my place that I, the dust of virtue, keep yet no resign, I must, my jewel. That's not normally the way this kind of verse works. I mean, it, it, I start, I, I'm now looking again at the enjambment within Langley's poem, which is sort of interesting and distinctive in the same way. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the, the, the nice thing is that kind of Langley gives us a, a guide or, no, I mean, that, that sort of diminishes what he's done, but he gives us something to go along with, um, which is maybe maybe what we need uh, if we can't spend the hours ourselves. So um, when we're, we're moving away from looking at the, the monument itself, but we will be going back to it and back to it and back to it because that's what Langley asks us to do. Let's get into this poem, this poem called Achilles. And this is from a collection called The Face of It, which was released in uh, something like the year 2000. Is that right? Oh, later. Uh, no, 2007, I think. Oh, OK. It's as late as that. And Achilles was first published in that book. So it's probably probably one of the late, so probably was written or brought to its final form, 2006, 2007 or so, I'd have thought, yeah. Let's just read this, and there's a particular bit that we'll focus on. Um, Let's read it and hear it and see what's going on. Um, And I think like a lot of his poems, it's maybe something about perception. It's about visual experience. So are you going to start us off, Jack, and we'll then take it in turns to read stanzas? Yeah, of course. Achilles. One is seldom directed by way of an indigo gate. A life is plunged in colours, saturations, shades, tints, hues. One screws one's eyes up. A medieval list of inks confuses fuscum pulverum with azure from the mines of Solomon. Who knows what purse is? Days lose themselves in pandia omnia and dip away between the pinks and blues. But then there is alizarin, which sometimes jumps from the old leaves. And turquoise is a stone dropped near the gamboge fence. Who did not notice those? And shapes, the tree. It shows what one could call constraint. It bursts through rocks in calluses that clog into a lump with several branches lunging out of it, one knot hole and a stump. The thing has corners to it, pockets, ledges, wedges, all choked in with lichen on them, found out by the sun that stabs down from the right, detecting olive green. In 1633, when she was 25, on a creamy marble slab in the South Isle, they drew Elizabeth Havers. Did she have time to walk out past a red house, choose a brush, paint a picket white, step on by, turn round, look back and shout that she could see what it might mean? But that was the place where she had been. She is a whisper smoke and cream. What had she really seen? She rolls her eyes and wears her shroud so it does not cover her lace cuff. The killix has been cracked. The mend in it spoils his cheek piece and his mouth. 
but there is still his eye under the helmet's rim as he stabs her from the right. She reaches up to touch his chin, BC 460, killing Penthesilea. It is his last and only chance to stare at her. He does so and he falls in love. Or is it lust or scorn? Furious concentration? Don't call it blue. Not blue. The gate is indigo. She is engraved on her stone slab. The aisle window moves its print onto her face. It stresses her lips, almost rubbed out, and the scoring of her thick curls her tear ducts, the look she is giving to her left, which might be sad because she is remembering what? Ten minutes of afterglow, when white campions seemed distilled against grey grass, the poppy in the crop, a light, red for itself, and she stood stupefied by that, hoping the hero had not seen her yet. If she had lived, she would be 65. Sir Isaac Newton in a dark room pins his paper, sets his prism 22 feet off and asks a friend who has not thought about the harmony of tones in sounds and colours if he will mark each hue at its most brisk and full. If he can also postulate along the insensible gradation the edges of the seven, where blue ends, where the violet begins, the pencil in hand. The hand and pencil are suddenly, intensely indigo. The gate is indigo, but when they give directions, people call it blue. To lose the way is to remember something of the stump. But can anyone be ready for the moment when the dusk ignites the poppy? Or accept that the spectral hand is his, but it's he must keep the pencil steady? Maybe everyone is dazzled here by simultaneous death and love. This morning in the pool at Limekiln Sluis, a heron wades and his deliberations are proposing ripples which reflect on him, run silver collars up his neck, chuckle his chin, then thin to sting the silence where he points his beak, his round and rigid eye. Perhaps he knows he is caressed. So both times we've we've read this out loud, I just feel you, you really get a sense of, of, of motion, of the, the variety of rhymes and sounds and rhythms that Langley's playing with. And maybe those things are best dealt with in detail when we kind of get stuck into the most relevant stanzas. But um, I think it's fair to say that this is something that really comes to life with performance out loud, which isn't true of every poet. Um, and I think to just sort of start to get to, uh, get to grips a little bit with this, um, I think... And I'm, I'm kind of looking for your backup here, Jack, because I, I'm, I'm because I'm not the expert. But is it right to say that sort of a lot of Langley poems are a few different pieces coming together in an interesting and provocative, but not necessarily coherent or obviously coherent way? I suppose the question of whether whether they become coherent or not is perhaps is you know 
to an extent that's a live one. Um, I'd say if we want to read, Lang- read Langley as a sort of late modernist, as someone who is coming out of Pound and Olson in some kind of way, what it means to read these poems is to find the ways in which they cohere. I mean, there's that great line in one of Pound's tragedies, Splendour, it all coheres, which is a Langley, I think it's what he translates, Woman at Trachis, I think, one of the Greek tragedies, is he sort of makes that the climactic line. It's a really interesting way of reading a certain way of, you know, reading the modernist poem. What does it mean to bring a variety of things from history, a variety of perspectives, and bring them together in such a way which only artworks can do and only a certain kind of poetics can do? So we we start with this interesting line, one is seldom directed by way of an indigo gate. Um, quite an odd little reflection about, um, you know, the way people give you directions to different places that no one ever tells you, I will just go in to the indigo gate. They say blue gate or green gate or something much simpler. But that's the start of this reflection on, on that reading on, on colour and language that you've, you've mentioned. Um, these, these, these odd fallacies from medieval manuscripts, um, odd confusions about what, what colours um, colour names refer to what colours um, coming to an end in that first stanza um, who did not notice those uh, you know as if there's there's lots of people not quite noticing lots of things about colour in the world so the second stanza starts with these micro sentences shapes the tree love these little sentences that he has um, and I think this maybe this is where some of that intense attention comes in that uh, that the, what he says about the tree is he is that the thing has corners to it, pockets, ledges, wedges, all choked in with lichen on them, which is quite an estranging way to talk about a tree, right? Yeah, I mean, this this stanza is it's, it's sort of much closer to a um, it's, it's different in lots of ways as well. Um, but it's, cl- it's close to a lot of the writing you see in the journals, the way when when he will he's writing about. The, the aspects of the journals which are, which are doing natural observation, I mean, I mean, naturalization, you know, um, Jill Manley, Hopkins, Jay Baker style sort of nature writing. So then, the, so we talked about the trees and the shapes. So we have colors first stanza, shapes second stanza, and then I don't know, maybe maybe the the third stanza when when he starts to talk about this monument to Elizabeth Havers, maybe that brings some of those things together. Let's let's go and explore that in a minute. Let's not say too much about that because we'll read that stanza again and come back to it. The fourth stanza, I think, is when things get a bit more confusing and disorienting if you don't have a reference list. This stanza talks about Achilles, which is kind of a Greek ornamental cup. And there's a particular Achilles that he's talking about um, that's discussed by the, the art historian, um, is it J.J. Pollitt, his name, um, which, you know, this, this cup... Um, records the story of Achilles and Penthesilea, um, and Pollock really, really regards this very, very highly for its expressive properties. We could talk about a lot about this, but that's very disorienting to suddenly go from Stockerston to ancient Greece. But then in stanza five, we come back, I think, to, to Elizabeth Havers. Stanza sticks, and we will talk a bit more about stanza five. Then it goes forwards in time to Isaac Newton conducting these experiments. Again, a bit of a leap, but it's it's actually very close, very made to be quite close and relevant to what's happened before. 
And finally, uh, or finally in the main part of the poem, we come back to the gate. The gate is indigo, but when they give directions, people call it blue. And there's maybe this one quotation, and I'd be interested to know if it's sort of representative or, or, or not, where he says, can anyone be ready for the moment when the dusk ignites the poppy? That might even be quoted on the back or in the blurb or something. Yes, quoted it's on, the, on the back of this. <laughs> on the back of yeah, the book. Yeah. Um, which does strike me as, as a really nice um, line, of, uh, you know, bringing together the colour and light and shape. Do you think that's a sort of representative way into Langley or is this is this a more eccentric statement by him? Um, well, that thing of like waiting, you know, the moment when the dusk ignites the poppy. I mean, this is this. Yeah, I mean, this, this is a poem which is interested in, you know, if, 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 if it's if you're saying this poem is interested in perception, you, you, you perceive things in time, you perceive things at a moment. And I mean... This is a poem which is interested in the history of those moments of perception. I mean, you've, you've mentioned how it's fascinated by, you know, dates. It includes the date 1633, and then we go back to 460 BC for the Kylix, which is mentioned specifically. And then we're made to think, you know, if she had lived, she would be 65. I mean, to sort of see those moments in connection as well. So at one point, this is a poem which is interested in organising data historically, organising moments by how they're related to each other, by how, you know, we can get information from them by the way they've been recorded. And yet, can anyone be ready for the moment when the dusk ignites the poppy? What about things that aren't recordable or recorded in that kind of way? So, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's I think it is telling, but the, so we're reading that as the climax of this poem and as something which might be useful for language poetics more broadly. Um, how do How do we sort of take serious the fact that we can only experience things in these strange heightened moments and yet these moments have to keep being recorded. Yeah, and I, th- I mean, I think that's interesting that it's sort of starting to see a possible thread through these really, really diverse stanzas is, is locating that visual experience in time. And the very final bit of the poem, which draws on Tess of the Durbervilles in this weird way, uh, just this, this story of the heron this morning. Um, so... Again, a particular time, a particular visual experience. Um, maybe that's one of the things we've got going on. That final section, it seems to be overlapping onto Hardy, another moment of natural observation. I, I mean, I, I don't think Lime Kilns Loose is in, is in Hardy. I, I think that's a place somewhere else. That's interesting because it's a moment when sources seem to be layered up alongside each other, as, as happens in one of the, the Havers stanzas as well. But actually... Yeah, what you get there is simultaneously an experienced moment and a a fictional record of an experienced moment. And, you know, there's a serious engagement with what happens when we think of those moments as overlapping. So let's let's roll back to that third stanza, which is sort of the big early modern moment when Langley's taken to task this um, this monument you know, we've we've had the stuff about colour, we've had the stuff about shapes. Now, in 1633, when she was 25, on a creamy marble slab in the South Isle, they drew Elizabeth Havers. Did she have time to walk out past the red house, choose a brush, paint a picket white, step on by, turn round, look back and shout that she could see what it might mean? that that was the place where she had been. She is a whisper, smoke and cream. What had she really seen? She rolls her eyes and wears her shroud so that it does not cover her lace cuff. 
So we begin that locating a, a, a you know a, a time where something's happening, 1633. Um, we've maybe had some sort of more abstract stuff in the first couple of stanzas. Now we're in 1633, something's happening. It's a little bit disorienting, I think it's fair to say. I've, you know, we've announced this poem saying we're in Stockerston, we're in this one particular church. We know this because we've been able to look at Jeremy Noel Todd's notes and we've been able to look at those Flickr photography enthusiasts. Where do you want to go with that? What do you think about that in 1633? I mean, I mean just sort of reading it again now, I'm, just, I'm, I'm struck by the ways in which you kind of realise it isn't true, or you, you, you just stop and think about the ways that it isn't quite true, because in 1633, when she was 25, the year they died, they drew her, one assumes the body wasn't physically in the church, I mean, they drew, they drew that there. I mean, it's what, what seems to be getting sort of concealed here is an actual process of drawing. I mean, I, I don't know anything about the experience of engraving, but I assume they work from some kind of sketch and then that sketch is engraved onto marble. Um, one assumes it is not physically done in the South Isle of a church. Um, it's done separately and then brought in there. When is it done in relation to her death? I mean, there's a sense that, you know, there's, there's a kind of gap between history and memory here. A whole set of actual historical facts are sort of being elided. It seems like quite a... Um pregnant sort of few lines as if we're going to get this story uh, that's what it feels like we're getting set up for you know we've talked about color we've talked about shapes now i'm going to tell you a story about elizabeth havers we don't get that story um and the, the idea that some information is being elided i think i i do agree with and that but that wouldn't be relevant if the rest of the stanza was talking about that process that we're seeming to get by drawing attention to the the process there, the process of drawing, the process of engraving or whatever. We've talked, or you, you know, before, or you've mentioned about how in his journals he, he talks about, you know, really sitting in these South Isles and, and really, really spending the time there. But it's almost like we've got the reader and we've got the creator there at the same time, or, or there's some sort of similarity there of them sitting in the South Isle. But also a sense of like, well, you know, it's, I mean, that's the thing you're saying about sort of, you know, where is, where is the critic, where is the reader, where is the observer here? And the, yeah, so subjects and objects are sort of getting sort of discombobulated a bit. I mean, that, that, that's sort of the oddity of tombs is that they are, they're unusual, certainly when you compare them against artwork. They're not famous for who makes them, they're famous for who is represented. You know, this is Elizabeth Havers' tomb by an anonymous artist. She, she, well, while she is the object here, she is the thing being represented. And, you know, both here, both here and with Penthesilia, there's, there's, there is a kind of gendered, there's a, there's a gendered dynamic here, which I'm not entirely sure the poem results. But, but she is simultaneously throughout this stanza, given the agency, and, you know, she is the one who is remembered, not the person who made it. Yeah, so the, the primacy this gives to the act of observation and how, you know, you, you find you're look, you, you are looking at yourself looking at this. And then, so we have that quite brisk, prosaic storytelling bit about what's happening. And then we, we in the next bit of the stanza, so we're going through in some detail, we get this sudden rush of questions that, you know, might be similar to... Uh, anyone thinking about the subject of an artwork uh, 
and those are the, uh, as follows. Did she have time to walk out past a red house, choose a brush, paint a picket white, step on by, turn round, look back and shout that she could see what it might mean, that that was the place where she had been? I seem to remember. Is there something about looking back or um, the, even just the word seen? It's, 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 it's actually, it's, it's not in the bit I read, it's later in the stanza, but certainly turn around and looking back. Uh, is there something there that can help us think about like perception and, uh, and how, this, how this is working, how this visual experience is working? Um, yeah, but I mean, that thing of like looking back and seeing what it might mean, this idea that you, you know things by looking back at them, um, which seems to not some, be something that's available to Elizabeth Havers, who seems to have, you know, died either suddenly or after illness and actually, you know, you know it's, it's, not, it's not gifted the kind of, you know, long life of retrospection, which that line seems to suggest. Um, and again, this, this is something which is brought up in, the, in, the, in that Douglas Oliver essay as well, when he's thinking about what does it mean to experience all of your life at the moment of death? And actually he says, speaking sort of from his own experience here, that 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 could still that could still be the case even with an infant and even with a severely disabled infant. Again, that, that's that's part of all of his life experience there. Um, but it's quite a, in the main way, it's quite a startling thing to say. But this idea that what I think Langley is running away at here is this idea of knowledge comes through retrospection, and even what we've been talking about, the moment when the dusk ignites the poppy, the moment of intense experience, what seems to be instantaneous actually only makes sense when it is put within a retrospective history. I mean, one of the odd things about Langley's journal articles, which is really hard to sort of get your head about as you read them, is that he's, he largely sort of, he wrote them up, he wrote them up early in the morning, describing as if they were happening now, things that had happened the day before. Already, already within the act of writing, there was a kind of occluded or concealed act of representation. I mean, back to that idea, as I was saying, you know, what is what is sort of being missed out, what kind of processes are being concealed in order to get something down as accurately as possible. Um, the thing I was looking up was, um, there's, there's the uh, Hegel quote, the owl of Minerva flies at dusk. Um, Minerva there being a source of wisdom, source of interpretation, the idea that basically the only, we are only able of inter capable of interpreting things correctly after, you know, at dusk, when they end, at a moment of reflection. I, I know Langley uses that line in his journals a couple of times. Well, I think, and I think it's useful to have that, that focus on that particular question. Okay, so, so just to remind you, turn around, look back and shout that she could see what it might mean. So that's one of the questions that Langley puts forwards. But it's sort of in the middle. And some of the others are, did she have time to walk out past a red house, choose a brush, paint a picket white, step on by? So it feels like the turnaround and look back, um, that has an important uh, role in, in structuring the experience of her whole life um, to see what it might mean. We might be thinking of, you know, um, Eurydice turning back, uh, for example, and, and um, everything going wrong after that. I mean, I mean, I mean, gender swapped, interestingly, but it's Orpheus who turns back and looks at her, not vice versa. Okay, so you know, and, and maybe there's other instances of turning around that we could we could find in literature. I, I don't have any others on the top off the top of my head, but um, these questions like walking out past a red house, choosing a brush, 
painted pick it white it's very odd that while we, we we're getting these questions that seem to be trying to structure her whole life and a whole experience we've got these questions that seem like ridiculous really um maybe with a kind of nursery rhyme logic you could go hunting for sources for these questions but i'm i'm stuck by the way that they, they do seem kind of entirely incidental and and yeah, don't make a huge amount of sense. I mean, that they remind us partly the mind of nursery rhymes, but also a bit of the way in Shakespeare characters will sort of rattle off questions and kind of fill time and kind of, you know, I mean, the one that came to mind was um there's that in Ham in the in the funeral scene in Hamlet in the grave, Hamlet says, you know, um, would weep, would fight, would fast, would tear thyself, would drink up easel, eat a crocodile, which again again a similar kind of like short staccato questions which kind of run through ideas, which don't make a huge amount of sense in and of themselves, but are gathering up details. I mean, Lang- Lang- Langley sort of sort of teaches Shakespeare all his life and sort of certain bits of that language sort of recur in various... I mean, this might be one of the quite subtle ways in which that kind of idiom is coming out. It almost feels more interesting in, in terms of it's dropping in details which you can't quite register, which are things which are kind of flashing by at the corner of your eye. Um, that's what kind of feels significant here. And things not quite registering. That seems to me to describe the the rhyme as well, which you did you did mention. And um, this 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 is an instance where it's come up. You know that we got in this stanza. Um, you know, talking about the creamy marble, but then later talk. You know, the cream links to mean. Then mean links to bean. And then uh, bean's gonna bean's gonna link to scene in a minute. So tell you what, let's let's look at the last bit of this stanza and just maybe think about some of those those rhymes as part of it as well. So the last few lines just say, "She is a whisper, smoke and cream. What had she really seen? She rolls her eyes and wears her shroud so that it does not cover her lace cuff. And maybe with with what you said about turning around and looking back." And, and Langley's own kind of experiences of, of, of writing down his past experience. Seen feels like a really important word here. But by rhyming it with cream and bean and mean, and in fact, all those words are quite important. I mean, mean, mean and bean, certainly. But by linking them all up with these rhymes, it sounds sort of ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it's the idea that rhyme... I mean, other, other, other people have said it in various ways too, but actually... Um, Rowan Williams puts it quite well in, in his book, The Edge of Words, which comes from his Gifford lectures. And he talked, he could also interesting there about rhyme. Sort of, you know, within a poem, rhymes can work like, like sort of natural features. They work like ecology. They, they, they work like things you kind of stumble upon. Um, and they aren't yours. They aren't, they aren't things you choose for meaning. I mean... So you know, obviously, certain certain words both rhyme and have similar meanings, and certain words, you know, because they rhyme, have had associations with them poetically. Death and breath um, is the sort of famous one, which then sort of like Herbert subverts the line "breath with birth," famously in prayer and things like that. Um, but also, you know, rhyme rhyme is often just entirely non-semantic and is entirely random, and actually how we deal with that randomness. You know, rhymes are the things in the corner of your eye, basically, they don't quite make sense. I mean, the, the big example really is actually in the previous stanza where you have the thing has corners to it, pockets, ledges, wedges. And, you know, again, I mean, that, that feels like you're slightly ridiculous, the kind of thing, a, you know, a poet shouldn't do. I shouldn't, you shouldn't sort of massively telegraph your rhymes like that. And it's quite striking they appear like that. 
but also makes you think, oh, okay, hold on, in a, in, a, in a section which is meant to be like describing a tree or describing an experience precisely, am, am I led to suggest that there might be some kind of semantic link between ledges and wedges as well if I go back far enough into Anglo-Saxon? Are, are they coming from the same word, given they're both kind of words for things that stick out or things that have a structural component? And I kind of, I, I think a kind of similar thing is going on with mean bean queen scene. That you know, if, if I if I if I start thinking for a bit, I will stick these things together. Well, and the, the end of that stanza saying she rolls her eyes and wears her shrouds that it does not cover her lace cuff. So this first sort of sign of reading some kind of vitality in the in the monument is to to show her boredom <laughs> with it, or to show that she's finding it a bit tedious. I don't know. It's, it's just funny to have sort of talking about the corner, you know, seeing things out of the corner of our eye, but actually the eyes that we're we're actually talking about. She's she's rolling. Did you, did you think she's rolling her eyes in the in the in the monument? I mean, I, I was looking at it as you were describing it, and I was trying to work out what what I actually think the eyes are doing. I mean, not, obviously they're stills; so they can't be rolling as such. But what 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 kind of life do you see in that expression? What's quite funny is that in in. The later stanza of this poem, Langley then says, the look she is giving to her left, which might be sad, because she is remembering what. But, and also thinking about, like, you know, like, just, I mean, this poem is thinking about the way that colours have a history, and like certain, certain colours only become visible at certain times because we have names for them. Like, in the same way, like, emotions and gestures have a history too. And I, I don't know whether people rolled, I don't, I don't know whether to roll one's eyes was a phrase in the 17th century. I don't know. And if it wasn't a phrase, did people do it? What did people What did people do when they were bored in, in 1633? It may or may not have been rolling their eyes. And if they did that action, did it have that name? I mean, that, that kind of problem, you know, how do we match up experiences and the names for them? seems to sort of be at stake in this as well. If I ever get to Leicestershire, if we're ever allowed out of the county again, I'll be looking at that and wondering, is she rolling her eyes or not? What I want to just ask, just to have one bit of reflection on, is what's he getting out of specifically going back to this time period, 1633? Is that a statement in itself? And... Although we can see this is slightly arbitrary, right, okay, so he's got an example from the 17th century, then he goes back to classical Greece, then he goes back, then he goes forwards to Newton. These aren't completely arbitrary, are they? Because you've got 1633, you've got someone living and, and dying then. You're sort of on the other side of a kind of scientific divide that Newton is on like our side, as it were. So does that make sense? So, so you know, we're on the Newton side of history, for better or worse. And Elizabeth Havers was on the pre-Newton side of history, for better or worse. She's maybe a, a kind of transitional figure or, or expressive of the kinds of lives that crossed over those two periods. I'm not sure how explicitly the poem is drawing those connections. I'm, I'm not so convinced Newton's... Newton's kind of being used as this figure of modernity and is, have, been, have been used as this figure like, of when things change. I mean, I think I, think I, I kind of get what's, what's interesting about this poem and is kind of, sort of slightly, at one level kind of, so, you know, it's, it's how it generates its kind of like spooky, spooky moments is the sense that things, things across time touch and speak to each other and resonate in strange ways. Um, and actually, given that we probably aren't, we aren't going to have 
Teaching my time to sort of discuss the second stat, the second sort of uh, Pavas stanza, particularly the way that that one ends. You know, you know the look she's giving to her left, which might be sad because she's remembering what, and what you know Langley then suggests she's remembering is ten minutes of afterglow when white campion seems distilled against grey glass, the poppy in the crop. That seems to bring us back to his nature observation, and then we get a light red for itself. And I'm conscious that red, you know, it's spelt R-E-D, but it's kind of a pun there, red for itself, interpreted in and of itself. And she stood stupefied by that, hoping the hero had not seen her yet. So suddenly Havers, having sort of been looked out and remembering what Langley sees in the orchard or sees and looks at the poppies, she then becomes Penthesilia, hoping the hero had not seen her yet being killed by Achilles. And these three moments, you know, it's that modernist moment of coherence they suddenly come together. Um, and then we get the historic moment of Newton. And then, and then because there's that possibility of seeing across time, I don't think we see, we see Newton as this figure who completely and utterly changes the way we see. Because, you know, it's, you know, new, you know it's thanks to Newton we have named the seven colours of the spectrum what they are. But clearly people saw people saw those colours or saw, you know, colours within the spectrum beforehand, even if they didn't give them those names. What do we make of the fact that they weren't named as such? What do we make of the fact that they weren't they aren't quite named in the way they've been named? Okay, so I'm I mean I'm I'm I think this is this I'm finding this sort of line of questioning more and more interesting because of course the poem starts with this medieval list of inks right so we've we've really got quite a wide range of time periods represented here I think maybe that's the question to sort of finish with and maybe not quite resolve there seems to be a a discussion in this poem of continuity and change to put it in a fairly boring way you know do we do we see Newton as, as as like the first modern person or is it actually just another development out of, you know, this creamy slab where Elizabeth Havers is engraved? Is it just another version of the medieval word lists? Well, as I say, as someone who's written about Langley and Latour, I, I kind of want to throw up the we have never been modern line and actually kind of say that actually all of these perspectives. Yeah, and, and it comes like, again, all of these things are being, being written about in a poem. And the way you experience a poem is that you turn moments into an instant kind of that that's the whole point of that that Douglas Oliver essay in a certain kind of way it was really interesting when he when he was talking about the rhymes oh scene does scene come later oh no it comes it comes further on in the poem like you in remembering a poem you don't necessarily even you remember the experience of how it sounded but you don't remember the details of when things came before and after somehow time is being condensed and shaped into a kind of strange instant and I think the, say, the fact that all of this is happening in a poem and Langley chooses to write a poem about this and write a journal article, write a journal entry about this, puts a certain kind of pressure on those questions. And I think he's interested in the fact that a poem might be the place in which, you know, things connect across time um, in this way, which, you know, makes questions like modernity and makes questions like the rise of science slightly bracketed or, or sketched in, in slightly different ways. We're talking about them at all because it's not necessarily something that uh, other poets we've talked about on the podcast have demanded that we think about often it's much more that you're seeing these figures as um one way or another as a resource as an interesting resource i think langley's finding 
you know, certainly plenty of imaginative resources in those in those churches and in those monuments. But he's also seeing these historical narratives or, or non-narratives. But I think it's very striking we've got there with someone like Langley, who's who's just outside of the academy. He's not in a university. He's someone who's just enthusiastically, you know, taking in all this stuff about the world and coming out with this amazing text. I mean, I suppose, I suppose one thing which, and it's just, I mean, one thing also which I think is, it's, it's one for the series so interesting and which links Trina and Langley, maybe the of Forrest Thompson in a way as well, is the reason I think early early modern poetry is interesting to read with them is it's a way, it provides a way for them to bypass, sort of bypass the romantics and, you know, they can reach back to a tradition of lyric writing um, which doesn't require us the kind of the poet has subject expressing feelings, and that's in the model of the lyric eye, which, I mean, that's that's not the only way of reading, like, Wordsworth and Coleridge and, and reading those poems at the turn of the 19th century. I mean, and, and you know, Trian and Langley find other ways to read them. But there's something about going back to the early modern moment, both in its poems and in its historical culture, which doesn't quite have the individual expressing feelings in the same way. And you kind of you can kind of like drag up this kind of these kind of bits of culture and sort of like ventriloquize them and put them on in a much more fragmented way and create a coherence which isn't the coherence of a single speaking voice. That matters to Prin in quite a different way to Langley, and Prin that's bound up in I think in political commitments about the dangers of the individual subject having um, power, which I, I don't think Langley is invested in in quite the same way because he's not quite in that academic setting. That's what's so interesting, I think, in, in, in this whole series, about making early modern poetry your focus, is that it's what happens when you cross a certain kind of gulf when poetry is, you know, the model of what a poem is, is a person expressing feelings, um, which, you know, older poems do in quite different ways from, from the kind of the lyric eye model. Yeah, and I suppose that period is potentially a battleground for these debates because you have the emergence of like the, the the Shakespearean soliloquy you have people like um Dunn who you know Levis was famously talked about reading Dunn as we read the living you know as we read a living voice but on the other hand you know I I'm certainly as sympathetic or more so to to a culture where people were just kind of grabbing knowledge from all over the place and shoving it into their poems, which is a, a different way you can talk about Dunn or, or Shakespeare operating. So it's only natural that if you slam things together from, from the most heterogeneous sources, that they can then be, be dissolved into their constituent parts or explored in their constituent parts. And that's true of people, like voices, voices in poems, but also of people in images as well. I mean, what one of the things that, the ways that, you know, Penthesilia in the ancient Greek Kylix and Elizabeth have us on this tomb are linked, is that, you know, one can find, you know, captivating ways of reading them, as Langley himself does in the poem, and as has Poet does in his description of that Kylix, as, you know, lifelike figures full of emotion and consciousness and rolling their eyes and feeling fear that Achilles is about to kill them and all that. Um, but we don't really know whether those feelings are hallucinations or not, because they come from a culture which doesn't quite have that theory of the subject, where, you know, that sense of who a person is, is, you know, as you said, being battled over. It's a bit of a battleground. It's not clear whether actually something like subject subjectivity is starting to emerge from a very different way of figuring who a person is. Well, look, fantastic. I think this is one of like, the most interesting 
sort of rounding up conversations I've had. Um, so I think this is fantastic. Let's let's read the poem and call it a night. How does that sound? You're, you're, you're going to start this time, aren't you? That'll be great. Achilles. One is seldom directed by way of an indigo gate. A life is plunged in colours, saturations, shades, tints, hues. One screws one's eyes up. A medieval list of inks confuses fuscum pulverum with azure from the minds of Solomon. Who knows what purse is? Days lose themselves in pandia omnia and dip away between the pinks and blues. But then there is alizarin, which sometimes jumps from the old leaves and turquoise is a stone dropped near the gamboge fence. Who did not notice these? And shapes, the tree, it shows what one could call constraint. It bursts through rocks and calluses that clog into a lump with several branches lunging out of it, one knothole and a stump. The thing has corners to it, pockets, ledges, wedges, all chocked in with lichen on them, found out by the sun that stabs down from the right, detecting olive green. In 1633, when she was 25, on a creamy marble slab in the South Isle, they drew Elizabeth Havers. Did she have time to walk out past a red house, choose a brush, paint a picket white, step on by, turn around, look back and shout that she could see what it might mean? that that was the place where she had been. She is a whisper, smoke and cream. What had she really seen? She rolls her eyes and wears her shroud so that it does not cover her lace cuff. The kylix has been cracked. The mend in it spoils his cheekpiece and his mouth, but there is still his eye under the helmet's rim as he stabs her from the right. She reaches up to touch his chin. BC, 460, killing Penthesilea. It is his last and only chance to stare at her. He does so, and he falls in love. Or is it lust or scorn? Furious concentration? Don't call it blue. Not blue. The gate is indigo. She is engraved on her stone slab. The aisle window moves its print onto her face. It stresses her lips, almost rubbed out, and the scoring of her thick curls, her tear ducts. The look she is giving to her left, which might be sad because she is remembering what? Ten minutes of afterglow when white campions seem distilled against grey grass, the poppy and the crop, a light red for itself. And she stood stupefied by that, hoping the hero had not seen her yet. If she had lived, she would be 65. Sir Isaac Newton, in a dark room, pins his paper, sets his prism 22 feet off, and asks a friend who has not thought about the harmony of tones in sounds and colours if he will mark each hue at its most brisk and full. If he can also postulate along the insensible gradation the edges of the seven, where blue ends, where the violet begins, the pencil in hand. The hand and pencil are suddenly, intensely indigo. The gate is indigo, but when they give directions, people call it blue. To lose the way is to remember something of the stump. But can anyone be ready for the moment when the dusk ignites the poppy or accept that the spectral hand is his? That it's he must keep the pencil steady, 
Maybe everyone is dazzled here by simultaneous death and love. This morning in the pool at Limekiln Sluice, a herod wades and his deliberations proposing ripples which reflect on him, bun silver collars up his neck, chuckle his chin, then thin to sting the silence where he points his beak, his round and rigid eye. Perhaps he knows he is caressed. Times have changed so clear your head may be listen to